before we get uh, into the, um, the message for the day, good morning. Happy New Year. I'm so immature, I'm watching um, people in Seahawks jerseys serving us communion, and I'm thinking, I am so glad I'm not somewhere at the other end of the country being served by people that are canceling out communion because they're wearing eagles. Um. <laughs> that was so immature, I should not have said that. <laughs> um, one other thing I want to talk, talk about just for a minute. Last Sunday at about this time, there was this terrible tragedy going on in Texas. You probably are aware of it in the, in the news. And um, I, wanted, I want us to just pray for this church. Um, is West Freeway Church of Christ in a, in a little town called West Settle, or White Settlement that had this shooting that went on. And it was in the news quite a lot. Other things have pushed it out of the news, so maybe you've forgotten about it. But my reason for bringing it up is twofold. I want us to pray for that family because um, not just the, the, the families of those who perished in that tragedy, um, but everybody in that church family has at some level now been um, torn up. In fact, the entire body of Christ at some level. Um, and I think we should pray. And the second thing is I want to be practical, and I want you to understand this about this flock, that we are watched over carefully, and we have been for a significant amount of time in fact, as long as I can remember um, that um, my, my role in ministry, the, the churches that I participated in, we've had people that are watching. And you should know this. You have people who have been trained whom I trust, and they are here present for our Sunday services, and they're looking out, and they're looking in all the time. And uh, we, we, we decided some time ago that the best um, protection would, of course, be the protection of the king, which we stand under. Every church would claim that. Um, but beyond that, we're also doing what's prudent, and we have shepherds who watch over. And I don't just mean the pastoral team. I mean others who serve you. And uh, you, you may wonder, why aren't they in church? Well, sometimes they're out there walking in the parking lot because it's their term, and their, their turn. And we want them to be visible. We want this place to appear to anyone who's going by. Uh, there's, there are people watching over there, and they just, just move on down. You know, this kind of a thing. So this is a safe place. I want you to understand that we take this very seriously, your care and your protection, and that's going on. Now, let's, let's just briefly pray for um, the Lord to do what only the king can do. God, um, it's inconceivable, the kinds of things that um, we're praying about right now. And we ask for what only heaven can do, that, Lord, you would make right that which has been torn apart, that you would make whole that which is broken, Lord, that you would bring peace into a place that goes beyond um, our understanding and that you would press it supernaturally down into the souls of people. We pray for the families there of all who have been so deeply affected and ask, Lord, for your covering and your peace in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. So today's the fifth. Here comes the first proverb of the year. I chose verses 18 and 19. Be happy with the wife you married when you were young. She gives you joy as your fountain gives you water. She is as lovely and graceful as a deer. Let her love always make you happy. Let her love always hold you captive. Great one. <laughs> all, the, all, the, all the wives said, yeah, preach. Okay. <laughs> So we're going to be um, starting a new series, and we're going to be landing today in Exodus uh, chapter 3, and we're going to be talking about finding our identity in God, because so much of a, health, a healthy life flows from a healthy view of self. And um, if you don't see yourself clearly, if you don't know who you are, who you really are, it's hard to be healthy. 
what do you do, what happens to you when you look in the mirror? Do you, um, I mean, I think a lot of people struggle. I'm not talking about necessarily physically, but I suppose even to that level. Some people look in the mirror and they see themselves and they see themselves way, way, way too negatively. You know, I hate myself, I, I'm weak, I'm ugly, I'm, I'm a failure, I'm a phony, I'm, you know, uh, I'm worthless. Um, and, and that's not healthy. That's not how the Lord God sees you. It's just not good to think that way. And other people look in the mirror and they see themselves too positively. Yeah, this, I'm practically perfect in every way. You know, when I, I look in the mirror, I like that guy. I'm, in fact, I'm too sexy for my shirt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, I happen to like myself. So, um, now, of course, neither one of those. That's a song, by the way, for those of you who don't know what I just said. That's a song lyric. That's not me making a statement. Um, except I did say it. Forgive me for that, would you please? <laughs> for that obvious lie. So um, my, my main point of this is that you cannot have a right view of yourself unless you have a right view of God. You just can't. You, you, you know, that's the anchor of your soul. That's what everything else rallies around. That's where it all begins and ends. And, and the God who made you and the God who knows you and the God who loves you, um, your sense of who you are has to be derived from a proper sense of who God is. That's what we were created for. That's, that's, that's why, how God fashioned you and he fashioned you and, and made by you to enjoy that. So we're going to look today at Moses to see how he struggled with that a little bit and what God said to him about that. And um, it was um, who he, who, who, when God said to him who God was, therefore who Moses was. But let's start with praying. Lord, um, thank you for the privilege of sitting um, at your feet, God. Thank you, God, that this room is full of hungry hearts who want to know and to grow in your word. Let our hearts, Lord, today be fed by your spirit. Feed us with your word, Lord, and help us to see how so much of what ails us flows from a wrong view of ourselves. And God, give us instead, put your truth down into our souls in place of those errors. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Exodus today. Now, let me give you some context about the book of Exodus um, from Genesis, which is the book right before. Um, the book of Genesis has got a lot of very notable personalities that you would recognize their names. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and one of his sons' name was, was Joseph. And Joseph, um, through a series of wonderful miracles, great stories, rose to become the ruler, basically the ruler um, of Egypt. So what happened was his whole family left where they were living and moved down to live with Joseph where he was um, a great provider and, and so influential. And then the book of Genesis ends with this phrase. It says, and Joseph was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's how the book of Genesis ends. Now, um, that's, um, that's a bit of a problem because God had made promises to Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel, about them and their land. And um, they're not even on that land. And the book of Exodus um, is the story about God's plan to solve that problem. And when God wants to solve a problem, he, he raises up a man. And the man that God raises up in this case is a guy named Moses. So you have um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. And so Exodus is kind of uh, the beginning of God's journey to get his, his people back to the land of Israel. And he always starts with somebody. He starts with Moses. So now Exodus is, is about the uh, oppression 
of the people. This new king had come along who didn't know Joseph, and the king decided to make this whole nation um, into slaves. And um, verse 11 um, uh, in Exodus once talks about that he had appointed taskmasters to afflict them. So not only did he make them slaves, he's, he's going to be pretty tough on them. And over the 400 years that they lived there, this, they went from Joseph and his brothers and their families, they grew and they grew. They went from, from that group to hundreds, to thousands, to tens of thousands, to hundreds of thousands, and even more. And Pharaoh, along, along somewhere along this, about 400 years into this, he's starting to feel insecure. And he tells all of the midwives to kill all of the male babies that are being born. And um, if you have ever met a midwife, or um, uh, you, you know that they're all about bringing children into the world, living and thriving, right? You know that. And so these midwives were not about that. They were just not about to do that, and so they didn't really cooperate with Pharaoh. And so, um, uh, and, and here's one thing. When, when they refuse to do that, Scripture even says that what God did for those midwives because they refused to do it, that he gave them households. It basically, he says, what that means in, in the context of he gave them families of their own, which was the highest honor for a woman would be to have a, a, a family and, and to raise children if the Lord allows that. I mean, I, I don't know that that's all that different than it is today. But anyway, so, um, um, so God takes care of the people who honor him. I just, I just kind of went on that little midwife rabbit trail because um, I just thought that was worth pointing out. So Pharaoh, they're, they're not cooperating with him, and Pharaoh was still kind of flipping out about this thing. And so he, he commands all of the Egyptian people, and he says, listen, if you see a little Hebrew baby boy, throw him in the river. His command now rises to, let's murder all these little boys, let's drown them. So it's a terrifying time, and... Um, uh, Moses is born into those terrifying moments, and um, his mother hides him, hides him for about three months. You may have read the story, and then through a series of miracles, he is found by Pharaoh's daughter. She takes him under wing, protects him, and decides to raise him in the palace itself. And, and, uh, you know, and all of that happens. Moses survives, and that happens because of this. God's in control. This is all God's plan, not the murdering of the babies, but the Lord has a plan, and it will not be thwarted. And Pharaoh's daughter sees Moses. He's, he's an extremely beautiful, Scripture says he's beautiful, kind of like my granddaughters are beautiful. <laughs> and Moses takes, um, you know, she takes Moses as her own and raises him in the palace. God's in control of all that. Now, R Moses grows up and becomes a man. He's about 40 years old, and uh, he's, he's seeing this abuse that's going on, and he just gets to a point where he's not willing to um, tolerate it anymore. And one day he sees somebody being pretty hard on one of his fellow countrymen and an Egyptian, and he kills the Egyptian. Uh-oh, what have I done now? So he takes the body and goes out and buries it in the sand. And um, the next day, uh, somehow the word gets out. The next day he has another encounter with another Egyptian, and the Egyptian says to him, hey, what are you going to do? You're going to kill me too? And so now he realizes, oh, I've not only done this thing, but I've known for this, and he's a little scared. So Moses takes off, heads off into the desert, lands in a place called Midian, and he lives there for 40 more years. So now 40 years, he runs, he lives in Midian for 40 years. He's 80 years old. Okay, um, nobody told you that there was going to be any math when you came to church today, but it's not going to get any more difficult than that one, so we'll move on. So God has taken... Eight decades to build this man through all kinds of experiences, and he's now 80 years old. And you would think that by now he would have figured out 
who he was. But he did not know who he was. The deepest question you can ask is, who am I? The deepest question you can ask is, who am I? What am I about? Why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? It all flows from the answer to the question, who am I? Okay, here we go. Exodus 3. We're going to pick up in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. So Moses has married Jethro's daughter. He's now a family man. And he led his flock to the west side into the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, We've learned this from previous messages we've been through here before, that in this case, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament mostly is here by this burning bush. In other examples, we see this angel of the Lord in a den full of lions. We see him in a fiery furnace. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay? This angel is Jesus Christ before the cross, before Jerusalem, before Bethlehem. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame um, out of the fire, out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, we have a plant around here. It's called burning bush. Euonymus? Uh, Euonymus. She, my wife taught me Euonymus is the name of it. Anyway, if you've seen it, you probably have seen it. I, I think I, I notice it like on freeway on and off ramps, and in the fall time, the reason you will notice is because it looks like it's lit up from neon, by neon from the inside. It's bright red. This is not that. This is a bush that's literally on fire, but it's not being consumed. Verse 3, and Moses said, this makes me laugh. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Do you talk to yourself like that? I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. Okay, so <laughs> not quite so formal. I'd go, whoa, where's my iPhone? I got to get up. He's scrambling in his robe. No iPhone. Too, you're too, you burn, born too soon. Verse 4, so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Moses said, here I am. Moses knows where he is, he just doesn't know yet who he is. Never substitute geography for identity. Lots of people do that. Well, I'm a student at such and such school, or I'm a, you know, I work in such and such place. You can know where you are without knowing who you are. And the thing is that power in life flows from a sense of who you are. You, you can still know, you know... It, you, you, you cannot know who you are until you know who God is. And, and Moses, he still doesn't know who God is. He's about to learn. Verse 4, Moses said, um, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. This is God speaking. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Notice God does not send Moses away. He just establishes the terms under which Moses can approach him. And, and, and God wants intimacy with you. He, he does. Do, do you know that, that God wants? I mean, God wants intimacy with you. And you, and you, and you. I mean, he wants intimacy with every one of us. But here's the thing. God's going to determine by which rules we can approach him. He, he doesn't send Moses away. He says, take off your sandals. 
For the place in which you're standing is holy ground. Holy here in this, this holy here means distinct. It means separate. It means set apart. You can come near Moses, but these are the terms. Take off your sandals, show some respect. And Moses does that. Verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, we're going to come back into this, this textual flow in just a couple of minutes. And I'll just tell you right now that if you've got your Bible with you, verse 7 ought to be underlined. Um, because because the, the, the children of the nation of Israel are suffering. The estimates are that there's probably a couple million of them. They're slaves, and their primary task was to make bricks. And when they complained, the response of Pharaoh was to up the quota. There's nobody there protecting their interests. There's no, you know, there's no grievances that they can file. There's no state agency. There's no, nobody's, you know, they're slaves, and they're suffering. And I'm going to take a minute and veer off of this because of some things that happened in my study um, this week as I was preparing for this. You know, and, and, and because, you know, I'm your pastor and I love you and I care about you. And I know that it's true that every week when we get together that there will be some people who will be here and um, they're just, you just have brought in wind with you pain. And it's not that you have um, an expectation about what you're going to hear or what you're going to sing. You just need to be in the house of the Lord because there's something about being in the presence of the King that in, at least for those few moments, the pain gets lifted. And um, you're thinking, you know, I've had a hard week. I, I've got some difficult decisions to make, and I've got these burdens on my heart. I'm, I'm, I'm perplexed. I don't know what to do. I've, I've, I've got this bad news, and I'm kind of stuck right now. I'm just hurting. And when I mentioned at the beginning of the message that we're going to talk about our identity in God, your heart response was like, I'm, I'm okay. And you're just kind of hanging on right now. Verse 7, you're going to find this for you, because you might have been saying to yourself, does God really know what's happening to me? The scriptures tell us, do not say my way has been passed over by the Lord. My cause is hidden from him. Don't say that. Isaiah 40, 40 verse 27 says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you, heard, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall be faint and, and be weary, and young men shall feel exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And here we get to verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have not heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. If you've been in church for a while, you, you know that the Lord is speaking and he gives individual words to people while they're at church. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm talking about this, this goes beyond you know, the preacher, this goes beyond the, the, the message. God is speaking into hearts in ways that will be clear that the Lord is ministering something of life and truth to you. And I think for some people in this room right now, wondering what God is thinking about the things that you're carrying and that you're facing right now, here's, here's God's word to you. I've seen your affliction. I see it. God's not missing this. 
He's not sitting this one out. He's, he knows exactly what's happening. He's, he's saying, I've seen your affliction. I, I've, I, I've heard your cry. I've, you know, he's been listening to you, and he's already on it. You, you may not have the answer you're looking for. You, you may not have the provision that you're seeking. You may not have the solution. Not yet, but it's coming. And you ought not to leave church today thinking to yourself that God's not on this. He's saying, I've seen your affliction. I, I've heard your cry. And he knows your suffering. He, and he knows this is a hard time. He knows, he knows your life from the beginning to the end. He sees the sun before it comes out. He sees what's coming in a week or in a month or who knows how long. But he knows it's a dark season and he knows it's a hard season. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we um, have a high priest who, who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. God's moved when things are happening in our lives. You should receive that. Just let that get into your soul. So verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who, who are in Egypt and who have heard their cry because of the taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And verse 10 goes on, and it starts laying out God's plan to drive the people out that are, and to bring the, that are in the land and to bring the children of Israel back from Egypt to that land that's theirs. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses is, wait, 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 what? <laughs> What's the plan? Okay, can you imagine here, you know, this happening to you? Okay, so God shows up. He speaks to you personally. And he says, I have a plan for your life. Here's what I want you to do. And Moses' response is a little bit disappointing because he doesn't know who he is. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I? <laughs> now, we can't really pick up the tone of what he was saying there from the text. Um, he could be saying, who am I? You know, why is this happening to me? Or he could be saying, who am I? What is my purpose in life? I think personally he's saying those, all of the above, and probably some more. I mean, because the thing is, he doesn't, here's the, here's the shocking thing. He really does not know the answer to that question. It's just kind of shocking. He's 80. Really, Moses? After 80 years, you don't know who you are? I mean, well, here, let me supply you some details about who you are. Um, let's let's help, you, uh, help you out with this, Moses. First of all, you are a greatly loved son. There's the evidence of that is, you know, your mother and your father put their lives at risk to save your life, or you wouldn't even be here. And your mother, Moses, cherished you so much, she let her heart be torn apart to put you in a place where you could be loved and raised and not put to death. You have no idea how hard that was on your mother. You are greatly loved. You're smart. You've been well-educated. You, you got a phenomenal resume. If you just look at your resume, Mo, you got, you got a lot going on there. And what's really revealed here is that, that you and I have proportions of all of that stuff going on in our lives, and you can have a lot of good things lined up behind you in terms of your experience, but still inside is this question, who am I? It's amazing that you can't ultimately get your sense of identity from here's four things. You can't get it from position. 
Sometimes people try to establish their identity from their position. You know, well, I'm a, I'm, I'm a teacher, or I'm a principal, or I'm a sales director, or I'm the CEO, or I'm the vice president, or I'm the blah, blah, blah. Okay, not putting down all of those positions. Great, do it. You should, you know, but, but that's good. It's good that, you sh that, that that's going well for you, but you got to let that go. Don't build your identity on your position because what happens when you aren't in that position anymore? You know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years in a career and then somebody says to you, empty out your desk, we're done here. Or in some other way. And, and that happens a lot. It happens all the time. Or, you know, but I have all these little children who lead me. The thing is that they grow up and they become competent adults on their own. And if your identity is only in being the mother of little children, don't build your identity on your position. Second one is performance. Performance cannot give you identity. You know, but, but, but Terry, I'm doing a really good job. Great. What happens about, what, what's going to happen when you fail? As, um, have you ever failed? We all fail, right? James tells us that we all, you know, we all fail in many ways. We do. We just all fail. Another one is popularity. Well, I'm a popular guy, you know. If you're so cool, you know, maybe, maybe you've got some style. Maybe that's all going for you. That's good. But if your identity is tied up in your pop... Listen, OJ was popular. <laughs> Lisa and I were watching that this week. You know, it, it, it's, 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 it, you know, our identity has to be found in something deeper and more lasting than position or performance or popularity. Some people will... Um, have their identity tied up in their possessions, you know. You know, check out my new my new car, check out my new shoes, check out my new watch. You want to see my new watch? Well, no, I really don't care to see your new watch. But thanks for offering. No, no. I mean, all of us have been tempted at some point probably in our lives to think more of ourselves because of something we possessed. The problem is, you know, just like position which you can get fired or performance where you can fail and popularity can fail. Possessions fade. They're all going to burn, right? Um, and um, whatever my new thing is, it's not new anymore. Have you bought a computer lately? <laughs> it, you can buy the brand newest, hottest, you know, and in three minutes, it's obsolete. It's, uh, it's old. <laughs> you know, anyway, you have to have your identity rooted in who you are, who you are. Back, um, I'm old enough to remember this, and it was a, it impacted me some. Um, back in January of 1977, on one of the TV networks, um, um, on a Sunday night at nine o'clock, this miniseries started called Roots, and it was on TV. Okay, this was remarkable because they were doing something on TV that had not been done before. It was on a couple of hours every night for eight nights in a row. It wasn't like we're going to see this over eight weeks. It was eight nights in a row, and. America tuned in. This, um, this little miniseries set all kinds of records, got all kinds of awards. It had, uh, I think, estimated viewers of 130 million people were viewing this now. Now, put, to put that in context, the population of the United States back in 1977 was 220 million. 130 million people were watching it. And you've got to subtract, well, at 9 o'clock at night, a lot of the population are in their cribs, <laughs> right? And some people have to be out doing their job. I, if you, you subtract the ones that had no opportunity to watch it and now say 130 million, it's phenomenal how many people watch this. And the reason that they watched it night after night after night is because it grabbed 
our country by the throat and by the heart at the same time. And it's this, um, this show that was uh, based on a book b written by Alex Haley and, um, and um, about a, uh, a, a young man who was captured in West Africa and uh, brought to America as, and forced to be a slave. His name was Kunta Kinte. True story. And uh, uh, why I bring this up is because I remember he said, if you watch the first episode, you'll see him say over and over and over again, I am Kunta Kinte of the Mandinka tribe, the son of Almoral. And it goes on and on. He says, it's the same, I am Kunta Kinte. I am Kunta Kinte. Over, 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 over again. Why is that significant? Because they tried to tell him he was Toby. Over and over and over again. And uh, under this terrible scenario, uh, ultimately he's, he's physically tortured to the point where he ultimately says in front of all these other slaves, I'm Toby. And he'd just given up. His will had been broken. He, after allowing himself to be called Toby, he started to call himself Toby, a name that he knew wasn't true. Now listen, I'm not making the case here about slavery or the fact that he was tortured. I'm just saying what happened to him in a compressed time frame is what the enemy of our soul tries to do to us over an expanded time frame. And we give up our identity. You know, if you have a strong family background, a strong family heritage, that's not enough to build your identity. You, you don't know who you are until you know who God is. And that's the only rock that you can stand on that will hold up your entire life. No matter what you face, no matter what you go through, if, you're, if your spouse leaves you, if, you're, if your heart's broken, um, if your business fails, um, if your possessions disappear, th that, the only thing that will never change is God himself. And, and God wants to change the world through this guy, Moses. But first, Moses has got to settle who he is. The deepest question you can ask is who I am. The best discovery you can make is who God is. The best discovery you can make is who God is. And notice Moses does not get the answer he's asking for. Who am I, he asks. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should bring, should I go, go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Notice God does not say, Moses, you're awesome. He doesn't say that. He's not saying, you're a great guy. You're smart. <laughs> God's not saying that. He doesn't say, Moses, you got to stop that stinking thinking. Right? <laughs> he does not say that to him. He doesn't say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. Repeat after me. He does not say that either. None of that. God does not see you and me struggling with our identity and then pump up our flesh. That's not what God does. Instead, God points out that, you know, what do you have, Terry, that you didn't receive? He says, you know, he's saying to all of us, he's saying, you know, some of us, we have these things, you know, you're smart, you're handsome, you're, you know, you're talented. All of us have these gifts that have been given to us sovereignly by the Lord. And to be able to do what God wants us to do. None of us here is lacking what they're supposed to have to do what God wants us to do. And every one of us has some good things because Scripture tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights in heaven above. 
God's not going to move toward you and say, well, you know, you're really, really good looking. (laughs) That's not God's plan. God is not going to inflate your flesh as a point of your identity. Your identity is not found in the good gifts that the Lord God has given you. Your identity is found in the giver of the good gifts. And this has really, really, really confused our world today. Back in 1933... The Humanist Manifesto I was published and signed by a handful of people. Um, and I'm going to just read to you uh, the Humanist Manifesto. This is number one. Now there's three total um, from 1933. Here's an excerpt. While this age does not owe a vast debt to traditional religion, it is nonetheless obvious that any religion that could hope to be a force for today must be shaped for the needs of today. To establish such a religion is a major necessity in the present. Let's form a new religion. That's what that sentence says. We therefore affirm the following. Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing, not created. Though we consider the religious forms and ideas of our fathers no longer adequate, the quest for the good life is the central task of mankind. Make ourselves happy. That's the most important thing. Now, it goes on. It says some other things. And what I want to point out to you in, in reading of just this first one is that it was signed by a handful of people, a small handful of people. One of them is a guy named John Dewey. Maybe you know who John Dewey is. The Dewey Decimal System, um, he's referred to by many people as the father of modern-day education system, John Dewey. Man alone is responsible for the realization of his dreams. He has within himself the power for his achievement. I hear that, and I think still, you know, after a couple of world wars and mass genocide and failed political utopia and, you know, misguided eugenics, all these things, these philosophies not only still remain, they become more entrenched. People will not let go of the concept that the answer is within me. You know, look in the mirror, pump it up. You've got it. You go for it. You go for it. This has become known as the self-esteem movement. Self-esteem movement. Okay, by 1973, update to the Humanist Manifesto. It was written, and to update, now make no mistake, this is an atheistic religion. It's not a philosophy. They said, we have to form a new faith, and it's treated like every other faith. It's somehow sacrosanct, you know, whatever it is. Okay, so, okay, updated in 1973, and they still believe all that other stuff. Traditional theism especially faith in a prayer-hearing God assumed to love and care for people and to do something for them is an unproved, outmoded faith. We believe the traditional dogmatic authoritarian religions that place revelation God ritual above human needs is a disservice to human beings. So they're saying that everything that happens in this place is not only um, worthless, but it's hurting you. Okay, that's what humanism says. While there is much that we do not know, humans are responsible alone for what they become. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. And, um, you know, that philosophy, that religion has become the driving force of the educational system that our, that our culture is immersed in today in elementary and high school and college and graduate. And it, that's, this is the prevailing thought by far. Now, I want to to make this important statement. It's important that you hear me say this. I'm talking about the system. I'm not talking about the godly people that you and I know in our education system who serve 
faithfully to the Lord in spite of these pressures. And I'm grateful for those. When I, when I encounter someone in, in the education system who I know love the Lord, I want to support them in every way I can, and we should. They're in a tough place doing a hard thing. Anyway, so, but this has been going on now for generations. And um, after generations of this religion being introduced, the, the, the thinking of, of how we view ourselves, the sad fact is that it's, that it's, it's made inroads into Christianity. So-called Christian psychologists are everywhere taking this, this secular philosophy and saying, build your children's self-esteem. Just, just build your kids' self-esteem. Just pump it in there. Tell, the, tell them every day how awesome they are. Tell them every day how awesome they are. And I have to say this. That's not scripture. That has to be torn down in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you to tear your children down. I'm telling you to love your children. But building them, this is not the way to do it. Jesus didn't say that we should find our lives. In fact, he said we should lose our lives. Well, Terry, isn't low self-esteem a problem? Yeah. Yes, it is. But the answer to low self-esteem isn't high self-esteem. Whether it's low self-esteem or high self-esteem, it's the same problem. It's a preoccupation with self. The answer is no esteem, to be free from myself. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, getting rid of the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy and all its posing and posturing, to get even near it even for a moment is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. The problem with um, preoccupation with self on either end of that spectrum, in the, in the middle of that comes the biblical alternative to a self-esteem identity a God-centered identity. A God-centered identity. Do you remember back in high school? Some of you are there now. And now the labels I use will date me, um, but you, will, I, you, you can stick your own labels in here, but you think about all of the identity groups that were circulating about your high school when you were in high school. I mean, I look at it back, and I can see it like it was almost yesterday. I mean, we had the geeks, but we actually called them nerds. Um, then you had the brainiacs, the people who were just insanely smart, and they got A's on everything all the time. You had the class clown who was always making things fun for everybody. Um, you can raise your hand anytime you identify with me. Um, um, you had the jocks who were the athletics, and they could do everything and won everything. And then you had the beauty queens, and um, you have the rebels who needed to make everybody know that they didn't belong to everything, but they belonged to the, the rebel group, but whatever that means. You had the party animals. Um, okay. Banned people. <laughs> I, I don't know. Banned people. What's that all about? Okay. So um, um, you had the motorheads. You had the greasers. Hey, I like music. Okay. Just whatever. Uh, somebody cheer for the greasers? <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, the, the, the majority would be, I guess, maybe just the crowd. The qu people who quietly went along and never got their names in the lights. Um, and what's enormously obvious to me now, but was completely hidden to me then, was all of that was just a, a quest for some sort of identity. Search for identity. And God's answer to Moses' um, identity crisis, his, 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 uh, or your identity crisis, the same answer is for each of us, is what we need. Notice how God settles this for Moses. He just says to him simply, Moses, Moses asks, who am I? God doesn't tell him who he is. 
Verse 12, he said, but I will be with you. That's, that's all you need to know. Everything you need to know about yourself is right there. I will be with you. God's saying that. This is one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. God says, I will be with you. John Wesley um, said on his deathbed, best of all, God is with me. And God says it here, I will be with you. It's what he said to Abraham in Genesis 26. He says it to Jacob in uh, Genesis 31. He says it to Moses here. And then later he says it to Joshua. And when he says it to Joshua, he says, Joshua, I'll be with you as I was with Moses. God's answer to my security, to, to God's answer to my identity issues are not statements about who I am, but statements about who he is and what he will do. I will be with you. Verse 12, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I, will, that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of, our, of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, he's thinking, I'm going to have to have something more than this. I, I can't just walk up to two million people and say, hey, come on, let's go. Um, I need something. If, if the people say, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am, which is kind of like saying, I'm not going to answer your question. Here's the answer that you need. I, said, I, I don't need to answer your questions. In fact, I don't need to answer your questions because I don't need. I am that I am. I'm self-existent. I'm, I'm not contingent on anything. I don't have needs. I am. Not I was. Not I will be. I am that I am. That's an awesome, awesome answer. I mean, that's what a statement for God to make. God's in need of nothing. Everything else in the universe has a need. Everything. Not God. That's an awesome statement. That's why you and I can find our identity in him. He's, he's not, he's not going to run out. He's not going to come up short. He's not going to need you know, change, nothing like that. God's eternal. He's infinite. I am that I am. Get your stance on that, on that. You'll never know who you are until you know who God is. I, I think it's a lot easier to see people struggling with their identity everywhere else except in the mirror. <laughs> you know, and, and the message coming to us today is, is this. Get your feet on that rock. Get free from the things that you think will give you a sense of belonging and get to the only thing that ever will, and that's the God who made you. Now, can I just take a moment, um, a, a little tiny moment for a bit of theology about this whole thing? Um, that little phrase, I am that I am, is the verbal form of um, four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H would be the English way we'd, we would write them out. And I, I think that got messed up a couple hundred years ago when some people took the Greek vowels from um, the word Adonai and stuck them in there so that it would have vowels and we could pronounce it. And, and they started pronouncing it Jehovah, which in my opinion is I think it's an error uh, because those, we only have the consonants. Um, and um, the Hebrew people considered the name so holy they wouldn't utter it. But this passage we've just been in here, I think, gives permission to say the name of God. Tell them I am has sent you. God is right there saying, go ahead and tell them my name is I am. And um, I, think, I think Yahweh would be a more accurate way to, pr to, to pronounce that, that, but we still don't know. But rather than fussing over how we're going to say it, 
It means I am that I am. I, or I will be what I will be. I, I will be all that you need me to be. When you, in your Old Testament, look and you see the word Lord and all four letters are uppercase, that's this word. That's Y-H-W-H. Every time you see it in your Old Testament, that's God's name, Yahweh. Yahweh is Jesus. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the Christ in the burning bush. John um, chapter 8, Jesus is being asked who he is by the, by the Pharisees. And he says this, before Abraham was, not I was, before Abraham was, I am. I predate Abraham. He's eternal. He doesn't have a born-on date. He's eternal. When this happened, the Jews plugged their ears. La, 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 I can't hear what you're saying. I mean, they, they wanted to kill him because they were very clear, he, understanding. He was saying, I'm God. I am Yahweh. He claimed that name. There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John that Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am. I am, he said. Now, we're going to go deeper into this um, as we see Moses encountering God and uh, as how he get, begins to get his roots and identity in God. Um, and there are two things that I don't have time for today. I'm just going to say these to you and let the Holy Spirit do with us as he will. Two things that I don't have to do. I am known by the Lord. And I am loved by the Lord. Even though God knows me perfectly, he loves me completely. Who am I? I'm known by the Lord perfectly and loved by the Lord unconditionally. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about insecurity. Let's pray. So Lord, um, we want to be healthy, not feeding upon self-esteem, but instead, Lord, to be anchored upon you. So what we've been going through here today in your word and in these considerations, whatever is light and truth, plant it, Lord, deep in our souls and everything else, let it blow away like so much chaff. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm. Let's stand to our feet.